you either don't care about Mizzou basketball anymore, maybe like me, or you love Jesus, which is why you're here, maybe both, I don't know. Hey, uh, sometimes expectations collide with reality, and reality disappoints us, right? It's called being a Chiefs fan, or, or I know, I know. It's not too soon, it's real. Uh, or another example, uh, the Fire Festival. Maybe, maybe you've seen one of the documentaries on Hulu or Netflix about the now infamous Fire Festival organized by one of the greatest rappers of all time, Ja Rule, and another dude, Billy McFarlane. Uh, here's a picture of them. You guys don't even know who Ja Rule is, do you? Back in 2017. Okay, so if you have no idea what I'm talking about, Fire Fest. It's promoted as this luxurious uh, event, right? This countercultural cultural moment, right? Cre- created from a blend of world-renowned musicians, artists, high-end food from celebrity chefs, all the alcohol you can imagine. You see, Firefest was promoted as a once-in-a-lifetime experience, the party of a decade, an immersive music festival on a remote private island in the Bahamas once owned by Pablo Escobar. See, it was supposed to have the best of food and art and music and adventure, and it was all on the boundaries of impossible, promoters said. And people, people paid stupid amounts of money for this thing, right? Some up to $200,000 to fly in private planes, to stay in oceanside villas, to eat world-class cuisine, to party alongside celebrities and supermodels. So the expectations for Firefest were through the roof. It was going to be unreal. Except it wasn't, right? I mean, if you know the story, you know in reality it was a disaster, See, after arriving to the island, not on those private jets, but on delayed economy flights, festgoers quickly realized that infrastructure on the island, infrastructure for the festival, wasn't come close to finish. Instead of luxurious transportation, they were crammed, hoarded onto these yellow school buses. Instead of those luxurious oceanside villas, You've seen the documentary, it's ridiculous. They get flooded FEMA relief tents left over from Hurricane Matthew. Here's a photo. That world, this is the best, that world-class cuisine that they were promised? Well, that turned out to be cheese sandwiches and some nasty lettuce, right? That's what they got. $200,000 for cheese sandwiches, not the kind in Jamaica either. See, at the end of the day, Billy McFarlane, Billy McFarlane was a fraud. Right? Firefest in many ways was over before it even started. Reality didn't live up to expectations. Has that ever happened to you? Not obviously with respect to Firefest, but, but reality doesn't live up to your expectations, whatever they are. I saw a meme a few weeks ago after watching the Super Bowl halftime show. I can't stop laughing about it. It's too good not to share. Here it is. See, expectations meet reality. See, we've all kind of been there before, right? Not because we want to look like Adam Levine. Maybe you do. I don't. Maybe I do. I don't know. But, but like that Illinois guy drinking whatever he's drinking, we all have expectations of some kind, things that we want, whatever they are. 
Now, the problem, of course, is that sometimes those expectations, they collide with reality. And when they do, reality lets us down. It disappoints us. It leaves us frustrated and unhappy. See, whether you're here tonight or listening online, I'm glad you're here with us because we're continuing our sermon series called Uncomfortable. And if you've been with us the last few weeks, you know that we've been looking at the reality that following Jesus is going to make us uncomfortable at times. Why? Well, because faithfully following Jesus means we're going to have to accept uncomfortable truths that Jesus teaches. It means we'll have to embrace a willingness to do hard things. Hard things like loving others sacrificially. But it also means committing ourselves to doing life with and alongside uncomfortable people. See, tonight we're talking about the uncomfortable reality that, that the church, and by church I mean God's people, his family, past, present, future. God's church is messy. God's people are messy. You and I were messy. See, sometimes I think that, that we're surprised by that, almost as if our default is to expect otherwise. We forget that the church, God's people, his family, we forget that it's comprised of people with different backgrounds, people with different personalities, people with different opinions and experiences and gifts and strengths and weaknesses, people with different sins that plague us. And we expect, we want, with respect to people, polished and put together, when in reality, God's people are often a dirty mess. See, I think for most of us, that's disappointing. That messiness is uncomfortable. It makes us feel let down by God and others because his people don't live up to our expectations. But the question that I want to ask tonight, the question that I want us to reflect on, to wrestle with, is this. Are our expectations for being a part of God's family, are they realistic? Are our expectations for being a part of God's family realistic or are they utopian, ideal? See, if you expect the church to be a perfect place for perfect people, I hate to break it to you, but you're going to be disappointed. There's a little verse in the Old Testament book of Proverbs, kind of these, these pithy sayings of, of wisdom and such that I like to turn to when, when thinking about this idea. Proverbs 14.4. This is what it says. It says, where there are no oxen, the manger is clean, but abundant crops come by the strength of an ox. Now you're wondering, what the heck does that have to do with what you're talking about? Here's what another translation says. It, it smooths it out a little bit. It says this. It says, without, a, without oxen, a stable is clean, but you need a strong ox for a large harvest. So here's the point. The point is that, that without an ox, the manger, another way of saying the stable, well, it stays clean. There isn't any mess. But if you want a large harvest out in your field, then you're going to need a big, strong ox to do the work. And that big, strong ox is going to make a big, hot mess in a stable after a long day in the fields, right? My three-year-old son, he's way into poop humor right now, so he would love this verse. See, the point is that if you want a large harvest, you've got to deal with the mess. 
The Bible says if you want a large harvest, you've got to deal with the mess. The same principle applies to the church. See, if you want a spotless church, if you want a Christian ministry, if you want Veritas to be free of messiness, that's fine. There just won't be any people there. But if you want lots of people, if you want people asking questions, if you want people learning about, if you want people growing sometimes very slowly in their love for Jesus, then it's going to be a hot mess inside that stable. So what do you want? Do you want a, do you want a clean stable or do you want a large harvest? See, the Bible says that we can't have both. We have to pick one or the other. See, as uncomfortable as it is for us, the Bible's expectation is that life alongside other people in God's family is going to be messy. It's going to be messy. Now, if that surprises you, messy relationships have plagued the New Testament church since its earliest days. Take, for instance, the disciples, some of Jesus' closest friends, his, his followers, Sometimes it's easy for us to assume that, that they had it all together, that, you know, it was this great group of friends that kumbaya, they've got Jesus, this one happy family all the time, always, but it wasn't. In fact, sometimes it was far from that. In one case, Luke chapter 9, verse 46 tells us this. It says, an argument rose among them, the disciples, as to which of them was the greatest. You see, even Jesus' disciples, close friends, struggled with comparison and rivalry with each other. They argued about getting preferential treatment, being the most valued, being the most favored by God. They fought among themselves over a desire for status and honor and power. Friends fighting over status and honor and power. Or think about the time when, when Paul's relationship with, with Peter, it gets, it gets a little heated in public. Galatians 2, chapter 11. Paul says this, when Cephas, that's, that's Peter's name in Aramaic, when Peter came to Antioch, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. See, Paul's saying in this verse that he had to publicly oppose Peter. Notice it says to his face, not behind his back. Why? Well, because he was clearly in the wrong about something. Wrong about what? Well, we don't have time to get into the passage, but the gist is that Peter was guilty of hypocrisy. Peter was guilty of racial pride. You see, Peter was living one way with a certain group of people and another way with a different group. Peter had let cultural differences become more important than gospel unity. And so Paul had to do the uncomfortable yet loving thing he had to call him out in, in public. Peter was a leader in the church. Philippians chapter 4 tells us that there were a couple of women in the Philippian church, Euodia and Syntyche. They were in some sort of disagreement with one another. We aren't told the specific cause of their disagreement. We just know that there was enough tension. Get this. There's enough tension in their relationship for Paul to have to acknowledge it in a formal letter written to the church that later became part of our Bible. Philippians 4, verse 2. Paul says, I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. See, Paul is 
imploring these two women in the Philippian church to reconcile whatever tension they had with each other. Maybe one of the more well-known conflicts in the New Testament comes in the book of Acts, again with Paul, but also another guy named Barnabas. If you aren't familiar with the story, Acts 13 tells us that Paul and Barnabas had been chosen by the Holy Spirit to be missionaries, sent from the church in Antioch to surrounding cities and nations to share the gospel. And on their journey, they take along with them a guy named John Mark. That's the same Mark that wrote the gospel of Mark. And about halfway through their missionary journey, for unspecified reasons, Acts tells us that John Mark decides to bounce. He decides to leave Paul and Barnabas and head home to Jerusalem. Now, that doesn't exactly sit well with Paul. So much so that that when Paul and Barnabas set off on their second missionary journey, it it creates this massive conflict between them. Let's pick up the story in, in verse 36 of Acts 15. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. There arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. I love the Bible's honesty sometimes. It doesn't hide from the reality that, that relationships can be messy. See, in this case, two godly men, two men called by the Holy Spirit to do a good thing, to take the gospel to foreign places. And yet at the same time, two men who come into serious conflict, so much so that they have to go separate ways for a while. See, ever since Adam and Eve's rebellion in the Garden of Eden, relationships as God intended them to be have been forever altered. What was once harmonious, perfectly harmonious, now relationships are tainted with with pride and miscommunication and selfishness and resentment and deception. And so, of course, when God's family gets together, people will clash at times. Arguments will arise. Conflicts will occur. Sin will ensue. You see, being a part of God's family, it's going to be messy. Committing yourself to it is going to make you uncomfortable. It's going to challenge you in ways that you don't want to be challenged. But hear this, being part of this family isn't optional if you want to faithfully follow Jesus. If you want Jesus, you get his family, the church. And the Bible tells us that we should expect his family to be a hot mess. See, I think sometimes if if we're honest, We have a lot in common with those disciples. We have a lot in common with Paul and Peter. We have a lot in common with Yodia and Syntyche. We have a lot in common with Paul and Barnabas. The messiness that we see in their lives is the same messiness that we see in our own. It's the same messiness that we see right here in Veritas. Conflict 
in our relationships with each other. Theological disagreements with one another. Hypocrisy. People living one way on Tuesday nights and at small group and on Sunday mornings, but another on the weekends. We're people who struggle with miscommunication. We compare ourselves to others. We compete with one another. We envy what other people have. At times we have unrealistic expectations. We sometimes are more interested in ourselves than in serving other people. The list goes on, right? Let me ask you this question. Is that what you expect to find when you come to Veritas? Is that what you expect to find when you come to Veritas? A room full of messy, sinful people. Is that what you expect to find? Because that's exactly what we are. That's exactly what we are. People who are often self-centered and proud. People who struggle with idolatry. People who are greedy, lustful, judgmental, self-righteous. Is that what you want to be a part of? You see, this is not a perfect place for perfect people. If you're looking for a clean stable, this is not it. If you're expecting polished and put together people, you're going to be disappointed. You're going to be frustrated. You're going to be unhappy because that's not us. That's not this ministry. That's not me. See, I get that it's easy sometimes to be disillusioned with God because of the messiness of his family. It's easy to be disillusioned with God because of the messiness of his family. But I think most of our disillusionment comes because we romanticize our expectations of what being part of God's family should be like. We romanticize those expectations. But it shouldn't surprise us what the church is like. It shouldn't surprise us because Jesus told us exactly what the church would be like. Luke chapter 5, verse 31 and 32. Jesus answered them. He's speaking to the religious leaders of the day. He says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You see, Jesus came, he said, for the sick, not the healthy. He came for sinners, not the righteous. That's what the church, that's what God's family is. That's what we here at Veritas are, sick and sinful people. Is that how you think about yourself? Someone who's sick. Someone who's sinful. That's what the Bible says. See, Veritas, we're a group of messy sinful people and perfectly committed to learning and growing in our love for Jesus. Notice I said growing, right? This is a different sermon for a different day, but messiness isn't an excuse to not fight our sin. And we're also a group of messy, sinful people and perfectly committed to living for Jesus' kingdom together, not some other kingdom, Jesus' kingdom. And so I'll ask it again, is that what you're looking for? Is that the kind of community that you want to be a part of? Because if so, this is the perfect place for you. Uncomfortable mess and all. Came across uh, this photo the other day. I think we have it. Yes. Um, 
Take a look at it. It's kind of a, a striking image, isn't it? A woman in a wedding dress sitting on a subway train, obviously upset about something. If you can't see the bottom, uh, the bottom of her wedding dress, it's ripped and stained. It's, it's dirty from something, presumably from wherever she's been. Keep looking at her. What do you think her story is? How do you think she got there? How did that bride end up with her hands in her face, sitting in a subway train on her wedding night? I honestly don't know. I'm sure it's long. I'm sure it's complicated. It's probably a hard story, probably painful. Some beauty, but some brokenness. See, I don't know the details of this woman's story, but it's clear that this bride isn't what she should be, be, and it's not where she should be. It's not what she should be, and it's not where she should be. Now, let me ask you this. If you were on that train with that bride, would you be willing to enter into her story? Would you be willing to enter into her story? story, or would that be too messy for you? Would that be too uncomfortable for you? See, in many ways, that that picture of that bride is much like the church. It's much like the church, who coincidentally, Jesus often refers to as his bride. Beauty and brokenness wove together, a story that's long and complicated, a story that's full of messiness, stained and ripped apart at times by sin, glimpses of beauty, but not yet what or not yet where it should be. See, the early church in Corinth, it's a perfect example of this. If you've ever read Paul's letter to the the Corinthians, you know that the Corinthian church was a filthy mess, right? I mean, we see in chapter 4, verse 2, that that Paul says they're arrogant. In in chapter 5, verse 1, they're they're sexually immoral. Some are even engaged in incest. They have lawsuits against one another, chapter 6, verse 1. Some of their church meeting, Paul says, do more harm than good. Some people in this church are getting drunk during communion. Is that good? See, Paul says they're proud about their gifts. They're sometimes unloving and harsh towards one another. At times, they neglect the poor. This church is a mess. But what does Paul do with them in the mess? Does he abandon them? Does he say, no, I'm out? Does he say, you guys are too much work? You're too uncomfortable to deal with? No, he does the opposite. He does the exact opposite. He leans in. He leans into their discomfort. He leans into their messiness. He enters into their story. He doesn't give up, but instead commits himself to them even more. Sure, he corrected them. Sure, he, he said hard things to them at times. But over the course of these letters he wrote to this church, he encourages them. He prays for them. He served them. He suffered for them. He thanked God for them. He was able to see glimpses of beauty in their mess, and because of that, he gave his entire life to building up God's people. 
church. Are you willing to do that? Not, not, to, not to, I'm not asking you to do something crazy and be like full-time ministry, right? We're not asking you to be like Paul. I'm not asking you to go that far. I'm just asking if you're willing to wade into the messiness of life with messy people, to encourage and pray for one another in our brokenness, to lean into the dirt and the stained and the ripped parts of others' lives? Or does that messiness, does that just turn you off? Is that messiness just too uncomfortable that it keeps you away? See, it doesn't keep Jesus away. It doesn't keep Jesus away. Some of you are here tonight and you feel like your life is too much of a mess for Jesus. Whatever you've done is too dirty. Whoever you've become is too messy, too stained, too ripped apart. It isn't. It's not. See, Jesus is always willing to go out of his way for messy people. And he doesn't just go out of his way, right? Jesus died for that mess. He died for your mess and my mess. The Gospels tell us that Jesus died for his church, his bride. He bought it with his blood. Now, if Jesus is willing... If Jesus is willing to meet us in our mess, shouldn't we be willing to meet others in theirs? See, of course it's true that life is easier when we don't get involved in other people, right? But God is calling you and God is calling me out to do something that is much more uncomfortable than staying inside of our insulated bubbles that we like to spend so much of our time in. He's calling us to enter into the church's story. He's calling us to commit ourselves to living life alongside messy people, to embrace God's family, and with that come warts and all. And so what might that look like for you? Maybe it means fighting through the awkwardness of saying hard things to a friend stuck in sin. Maybe it means joining a small group for the first time, or maybe it means sticking it out with a small group that, that it would be easier, easier, if we're honest, to bail because, well, these people are a little bit weird and they're not my best friends and things aren't clicking as quickly as I thought they would. Maybe it means lowering your expectations of what this community of people should be like. Maybe it means finally admitting to that person, whoever it is, that you're wrong. Maybe it means bringing a certain sin out of the darkness into the light with a trusted friend. See, maybe it, maybe it means talking about that conflict that you have with that person. Maybe that person is right here in this room. Maybe it means talking about that conflict with them, not other people. Not sweeping it under the rug. See, God has always been about bringing together people with different backgrounds, different nationalities, different economic statuses, different spiritual maturity levels. He's always been about bringing different people into his family. And there's beauty in that diversity, but we have to expect the mess and the frustration that comes along with it. 
But hear me say this, it's in that mess. It's in that mess that we slowly over time find opportunities to display the beauty of forgiveness and compassion and humility and reconciliation to a watching world. How countercultural is it to do that? See, I didn't mention this earlier when I was talking about that conflict between Paul and Barnabas. But we know from other places in the Bible that those two eventually reconciled with each other. And we have to ask ourselves, why? Why would they reconcile? Well, I think part of why they reconciled with each other is the same reason that Paul implored Euodia and Syntyche to reconcile. The end of verse 3 of Philippians 4, Paul says, these women's names are in the book of life. Their names were in the book of life. In other words, they belong to God. You see, the beauty in the mess of relationships is that the Christian church, God's family, in spite of the mess, will one day in heaven be worshiping Jesus together. Have you ever stopped to think about that? Like, like really, actually, stop to think about that. The person that you're in conflict with those messy friendships that you have, that hard person to love, that, that frustrating person that keeps struggling with the same freaking sin over and over and over. However uncomfortable it is, however uncomfortable it may be right now, if that person's a Christian, then the Bible says that someday we'll be worshiping Jesus for all eternity together. So fight to forgive one another. Fight to have compassion with each other. Show humility. Reconcile where you need to reconcile. See, this side of heaven, God's family, God's church, will always be full of mess as long as it's full of sinners. But God's plan to make his gospel known to the ends of the earth, it doesn't happen inside of a clean stable, does it? No, God works through messy, sinful, broken people, people clinging to their need of Jesus each and every day. Music team, come back up. Is Veritas messy? Absolutely. Right? We can say that. Veritas is messy. Is Veritas stained by sin? Yeah. Is Veritas not yet who or where we should be? Of course. Of course. But don't let that mess keep you away. Don't let that mess keep you away. Instead, lean into it. Lean into that mess, and over time, God will use this little community, this little community here at Mizzou to make you more and more like him. See, if you cling to Jesus, you'll begin to see the beauty and the brokenness.